If you have your Bible, go ahead and open up to Psalm 28. Psalm 28 is where we are headed together this morning as we continue our way through the Psalms this summer. As you're turning there, um, this past week was, was really great. So as many of you know, a, a group of men from the church got out of the hustle and bustle of everyday life and went down to Oregon on retreat to visit a monastery together. Uh, it was very refreshing and an encouraging time. Uh, and it's just, it's good to rest and reset together with God. Those kinds of times are essential. Just like we need to, you know, go to sleep at night, take a break from the day. Uh, every now and then in the course of life, we need a few days to, to break away and reset. Um, it, it was wonderful, and I hope for more opportunities like this one, together as a church in the future. Um, but during our time together, we were able to join in with the monastery's rhythms of prayer. So six times a day, the bell tower chimes, and all of the monks gather together in the abbey church to sing and chant the psalms together. Um, and and I, I didn't verify this. I wasn't, you know, t taking notes or anything. But traditionally, Benedictine monasteries, which is the type of monastery that this one was um, after the model of monastery put forth by Benedict back in the 6th century, uh, traditionally Benedictine monasteries will go through all 150 psalms every week. And there's, and there's six times a day of gathering to pray. They will chant and sing through all 150 every week right? That's incredible, right? Uh, I mean, uh, they, the, the Psalms provide a shape for their life and for their prayers. You know, we here have been going a bit slower than that. This is our fourth summer uh, going through the Psalms, and we're landing at Psalm 28. Uh, so we're going at a little bit of a different pace. But I, I do hope that as we return to the Psalms each summer and spend some time reflecting on them every year, that these ancient prayers from Scripture can shape our lives and our prayers as well, just, just like them, right? As we grow as God's people. And so this week, Psalm 28 is where we are. Let's read together. Psalm 28. To you, Lord, I call. You are my rock. Do not turn a deaf ear to me. For if you remain silent, I will be like those who go down to the pit. Hear my cry for mercy as I call to you for help, as I lift up my hands toward your holy, your most holy place. Do not drag me away with the wicked, with those who do evil, who speak cordially with their neighbors, but harbor malice in their hearts. Repay them for their deeds and for their evil work. Repay them for what their hands have done. Bring back on them what they deserve, because they have no regard for the deeds of the Lord and what his hands have done. He will tear them down and never build them up again. Praise be to the Lord, for he has heard my cry for mercy. 
The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in him, and he helps me. My heart leaps for joy, and with my song I praise him. The Lord is the strength of his people, a fortress of salvation for his anointed one. Save your people and bless your inheritance. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for your word and for the gift of these psalms that lead us and guide us in prayer. Lord, I pray that as we reflect on the words of your scripture together this morning, that you would sharpen our minds and soften our hearts, that we might know you and love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So Psalm 28. This psalm covers quite a bit of ground in just nine verses, right? It begins with a cry of desperation, and then it moves to an angry prayer for retribution. And then finally, it takes a sharp turn toward praise and rejoicing, right? So there's a lot for us to chew on, for us to reflect on together this morning. It's one of the things that I love about the Psalms, because no matter what state you're in, one of, of exhaustion or anger or maybe thrilled and joyful, no matter what state you're in, there are words and there are prayers here in the Psalms that give voice to our hearts and help us meet with God. And so we'll walk through each of these parts together. At the very beginning, the psalm opens with a cry. To you, Lord, I call. You are my rock. Do not turn a deaf ear to me. For if you remain silent, I will be like those who go down to the pit. Hear my cry for mercy as I call to you for help, as I lift up my hands to your most holy place. You can hear the desperation in these words, right? There's a sense of urgency. Uh, of it, the psalmist is desperate. I'm calling to you for help. I'm reaching towards you. Listen and respond, or I will be like those who go down to the pit. In, in other words, apart from you, Lord, I'm as good as dead. Apart from you, there is nowhere for me to go. All right, there is desperation in these cries. A sense of, of desperate need. That's where the psalm begins. And it makes me wonder, where do our prayers begin? Where do our prayers begin? I mean, do, do you feel like you can actually bring your desperate, falling apart self before God in prayer? I, I, I think for many of us, even if we don't outright believe this, even if we would never really say it, I think for many of us there is an underlying sense that we kind of need to have ourselves together before we come to pray, right? We have to kind of 
have ourselves cleaned up a bit before we can approach God. That if we come to God in weakness as the worst of us, then we're going to be turned away. We're going to be sent somewhere else. Uh, Most of you know that in the months after I moved to Seattle, I went through an unexpected and, and a painful divorce. And so, you know, after about 10 years for me of, of living and pursuing this sort of call toward ministry, I moved up here to begin graduate school as a continuation of that pursuit. But one of the first questions that entered my mind and my heart in the midst of divorce was this. Can I pursue ministry anymore? Am I even still allowed to minister to other people? Right? Or am I disqualified? Am I, am I rejected? Right? There, there's a part of me that felt afraid and ashamed. A part of me that felt like I should just withdraw. I was afraid that I would be rejected and denied. Fortunately, one of the elders at the church that I was a part of at that time was incredibly kind, incredibly generous, and he continued to walk with me through that season, continued to care for me, and, and, and most of all, continued to remind me of God's goodness and God's grace. He, he continued to, to help me move closer to God during that time instead of further from God, which part of me felt like that, that's where I was. You know, and, and as a side note, he also encouraged me during that season to read the Psalms, pray the Psalms, right? He, he said, go there when you don't have words during this time. I'm so grateful for that. Uh, but, but what I learned from this experience and what I've learned since then as well is that whenever we feel most defeated, when we feel most ashamed and desperate, that's precisely when we need to desperately run toward God. That's precisely when we need to, to desperately run toward God in prayer and in faith. And so I, I wonder, where in your life do you feel most ashamed? That's precisely a place that you need to bring before God. You need to pursue God. Where in your life do you feel most afraid? That's precisely where you need to, to run to God to come before God? Where do you feel the most desperate need? That's where you need to run to God. The Psalms teach us to cry out to God from the depths of our being. To you, Lord, I call. Hear my cry for mercy as I call to you for help, as I lift up my hands toward your most holy place. Hebrews 4.16 says, let us come boldly to the throne of grace 
that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. This is how we are to be as God's people. A people who constantly run to God in the midst of our desperate need. But I do want you to notice something in the psalm. Because though we run to God in desperate need, we do not run to God as if he were some kind of magic genie. Right? The psalmist says, To you, Lord, I call. You are my rock. Do not turn a deaf ear to me. For if you remain silent, I will be like those who go down to the pit. Hear my cry for mercy. Do you hear all the language of sound and speech throughout those lines? Don't turn a deaf ear to me. Don't be silent. Hear my cry. Right? The primary desire that the psalmist is expressing is a desire for God to hear and to speak. Right? For God to not be deaf and silent. These are requests for communion, for communication with God. The psalmist doesn't go to God to get presents from God, but rather to be in the presence of God. We don't go to God to get presents from God, but rather to be in the presence of God. When we go to God with desperate hearts, what is it that our hearts are most desperate for? Do we go to God as a, as a means to a different end? Or is God the end that we seek? Is God the one that we most desperately need? I'm reminded of the time in John chapter 6. A number of people were deserting Jesus because of his hard teachings. And, and Jesus turns to his disciples and says, Are you going to leave too? And, and Peter responds and says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Right? Where else could we go? Only you have the words of life. So when we run to God, we go to God in search of his life-giving words. Right? We do not run to God as some kind of genie just to get our wishes granted. We go to God as a father who loves us and listens to us and responds. Right? It's not things and stuff or even changed circumstances necessarily, but only relationship with God that can mend our desperate hearts. And so in desperation, we run to God. That's where the psalm begins, with a desperate cry, bringing the whole soul, the whole self to God. And then in verse 3, it takes a turn as some other characters enter the picture. 
the psalmist goes on, do not drag me away with the wicked, with those who do evil, who speak cordially with their neighbors, but harbor malice in their hearts. Repay them for their deeds, for their evil work. Repay them for what their hands have done. Bring back on them what they deserve. That's quite different than the tone he was just speaking with, right? It moves from desperation to anger or perhaps even outright hatred. You can hear that anger and that resentment in these words as the psalmist prays for retribution, right? Repay them, bring back on them what they deserve. Words like these have puzzled followers of Jesus for centuries. Words like these in the Psalms, right? What are we to do with angry, even hateful words like these? Because after all, Jesus is the one who told us, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Right? That's not what we see here. Jesus went on to, to model this as well. He showed us this uh, on the cross whenever he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Right? Jesus prays for forgiveness, not retribution. So what are we to, to think when we come across words like these in the Psalms, right? As, as followers of Jesus, how, how, do we, how do we approach these, right? Well, I think there's a couple of things to consider as, as we look at, at words like this. For, first of all, Jesus' instructions and his example to bless those who curse you to pray for those who mistreat you, to love your enemies. Jesus' instructions and example are the goal. That's absolutely the goal that we are aiming for. That's what we're called to. But we have a long way to go to get to that goal, right? We have to be honest, right? We're not there. And so we need some steps along the way to help us get to that goal. And so the pastor and author Eugene Peterson puts it this way. He describes lines like these in the Psalms as expressions of hatred. And then he says, human hate is not a very promising first step in the establishment of righteousness. I think we can all agree with that, right? Nevertheless, when prayed, it is a step, a first step into the presence of God, where we learn that he has a way of dealing with what we bring him that are both other and better than what we had in mind. But until we are in prayer, we are not teachable. He says, it's better to pray badly than to not pray at all. It's better to pray badly than to not pray at all. You see, the Psalms are not examples of perfection 
the way that Jesus is. But they are examples of prayer, which is where we have to go if we're ever going to become like Jesus. The Psalms are not an example of perfection, but they are an example of prayer. And prayer, we have to go to prayer if we're ever going to become like Jesus. And so once more, we see that prayer is not only a place where we go after we've gotten cleaned up, gotten our act together, and and figured everything out. Prayer is where we go when we are a terrible mess. We have to bring our anger, frustration, and even our hatred to God in prayer in order to see them slowly transformed into the love, goodness, and blessing that Jesus calls us to. We have to bring our anger, frustration, and hatred to God in order for them to slowly be transformed into love, goodness, and blessing. It's only by praying out the hatred that we have for our enemies that we can finally discover the love that Jesus has for them. We can't bypass our anger. We can't bypass the stuff that's in our hearts. We have to get it out. And prayer is the place we bring that. We bring our whole selves to God in prayer. Clearly, the way of Jesus is better than the psalmist. But it would be quite arrogant to think that we are better than the psalmist. And so these psalms of of anger and hatred offer us stepping stones toward letting go of our anger toward letting go of our hatred. Stepping stones toward learning the love of God. I think that's one way to to reflect on verses like these when we come across them, right? They don't reflect the goal, but they do offer some steps toward the goal, right? Uh, You know, better than lashing out at our enemies, let's at least tell God how mad we are about them. Right? That's the first place to start. And over time, we'll find our hearts transformed. Uh, but there's, there's another way that I've also learned to approach uh, sections like this in the Psalms. You see, the psalmist says, Do not drag me away with the wicked, with those who do evil, those who speak cordially with their neighbors but harbor malice in their hearts. Then in verse 5, They have no regard. For the deeds of the Lord and what his hands have done. You see, when, when the psalmist prays about enemies or about wicked people, I've, I've learned that maybe, there's a, maybe this is a moment to pause and to reflect. Are there, might there be some ways that these words apply to me? Are there ways that these words might apply to me? Right? In addition to considering how I think about my enemies, it's good to consider, is there anyone to whom I've been an enemy? Who might pray these words about me? Hmm. Let's pause and think about that. Right? 
Rather than, you know, obsessing or worrying about the psalmist's obsession with those wicked people, uh, it might be good to reflect on ways that I have been one of those wicked people, right? I mean, let's be honest. Have you ever spoken cordially with your neighbors while harboring malice in your heart? Yeah. Right? I've, I've said nice things before and really not wanted to. Right? If we're honest about that. Hmm. This verse might be about us. You know, do you ever disregard the deeds of the Lord? Just kind of go on about your life, not thinking of who God is, what God has done. Just sort of getting stuck in our own world. Yeah, I, I do that. These words might be about us. Sections like these in the Psalms uh, may sound arrogant, prideful, you know, full of ping, uh, f- finger pointing. There we go. Uh, full, full of finger pointing. Uh, but, but for us, as we read them, they can become occasions for reflection, for confession and for repentance, right? Once more, bringing our imperfect selves before God so that we might receive grace, mercy, and renewal. Prayer is this place where we are slowly transformed into the likeness of Jesus, we can only bring ourselves to it and offer our hearts to God. It becomes a place where our hatred can be reshaped into love. It can be a place where our works of evil can be replaced with the work of the kingdom of God. This is what prayer is meant to be. So as the psalm continues, that there's this, I want to draw your attention to, there's this recurring poetic motif throughout the psalm. Uh, so in the first opening section, you see the psalmist lifting up his hands toward God, right? I'm lifting up my hands to your holy place as he cries out in desperation. Then in the section that we've just read, uh, we see the wicked's evil deeds, the work of their hands, Right? But then in verse 5, the psalmist points out the deeds of the Lord and what his hands have done. There's this constant image of hands that shows up over and over again throughout the psalm. The desperate reaching hands of the psalmist, the, the wicked hands of those evil people, but then there is the hand of God at work in the world. And it is these deeds of the Lord these works of his hands that fuel the final verses of the psalm. Beginning in verse 6, there's this stark turn from the rest of the psalm as it erupts into praise and rejoicing, right? Praise be to the Lord, for he's heard my cry for mercy. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in him, and he helps me. My heart leaps for joy, and with my song, I praise him. All right? 
another shift, uh, stark contrast in the psalm. You know, and, and, you know, if this is David, you know, I, I imagine, you know, I wonder if he wrote this ending later. You know, maybe his, his desperate plea from earlier had been answered, so he wrote a new ending to the psalm. I don't know. Um, or maybe he is just in the midst of prayer, received some measure of consolation and comfort. And he says, Lord, you have put my heart at ease, right? So my heart leaps for joy with my song. I praise him. Uh, and then, uh, you know, he expands this image in verses 8 and 9. The Lord is the strength of his people, right? It's not just the psalmist anymore. Now it's all the people. God is a fortress of salvation for his anointed one. And so he prays, save your people, bless your inheritance, be their shepherd and carry them forever. I, I, I love where the psalm comes to, right, as it expands from the life of the one writing it to the life of all the people of God. You know, and, and again, if this is David writing, you, you see in verse 8, the Lord is the strength of his people, a fortress of salvation for his anointed one, right? David had been anointed to be the king he was the anointed king of Israel. And so in this moment of prayer, he moves from being merely David, the individual, to being David, the anointed representative of all God's people. And so he says, the Lord is the strength of his people, a fortress of salvation for his anointed one. The, the logic of the psalm is that the destiny of that anointed one is the destiny of all the people that journey with that anointed one, right? If, if David is delivered, well, then the people will be delivered too. He sees, he, he moves from his individual life before God to, to his vocation before God as the king of Israel. And he prays for them, save your people, bless your inheritance. Uh, you know, throughout the, psalm, throughout the um, psalms at times and also the, uh, the prophets and other places, sometimes the kings of Israel referred to as shepherds of the people. And so in the closing lines, he says, be their shepherd and carry them forever. You know, God, I, I have been called, anointed to be the shepherd of these people, but really you are our shepherd. And so he's, he's finding his own calling and, and place among the people of God in God. He's rooting himself in God. And so the destiny of the anointed one is the destiny of all of the people. Now, historically, this psalm uh, over, over the centuries in Christian faith, these final verses have come to be read and, and sung or, or chanted, perhaps, in reference to the resurrection. Because David was the anointed one, but Jesus is the real anointed one. Right? Jesus is the one who fulfilled the promise to David. The true king. Look back at this psalm 
with those eyes, with that lens, right? Can you imagine Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane on his way toward the cross? To you, Lord, I call. You are my rock. Do not turn a deaf ear to me. If you remain silent, I will be like those who go down to the pit, right? It's Jesus was on the way to the pit. He was on the way to the grave. Of course, Jesus does not pray for retribution as the psalmist does. He prays for forgiveness. But then after the cross, on the third day, he's risen again. And just here, verse 6 and beyond, in that context, praise be to the Lord, for he has heard my cry for mercy. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in him. And he helps me. My heart leaps for joy. And with my song, I praise him, right? Jesus was not handed over to death, at least not forever. He rose. He overcame death itself, and he lives. And so this psalm moves from a desperate cry to a song of rejoicing, which is what Christian faith is, the move from the cross to the resurrection, from death to life. And you see, the logic of the psalm is the same for us. The destiny of the anointed one is the destiny of those who follow the anointed one. If Jesus overcame death, then we, his people, too, will overcome death. We are wrapped up in him as we are joined with him. Death does not have the final say. The enemy will not be victorious. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, Paul writes. And so we can look forward to victory with the psalmist and with Christ, we too can rejoice. We too can praise the Lord because he has heard our cry for mercy. He is our fortress of salvation. He has saved his people. And so we pray that he would be our shepherd and carry us forever. Amen.